Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Fussman. Didn't quite know which episode was the best fit for this week. I pre-recorded several, but I like to put them out when they make the most sense in both my life and yours. Last week, you heard Aunt Mitzi give safety tips on the coronavirus. So many of you sent messages of thanks to Aunt Mitzi, and I wanted to keep that spirit going. This week, I came across a guy who coaches people on how not to let a bad moment spread into a bad day. I thought his advice would be helpful at a time when we're confronted with all the news about the coronavirus, which has now hit 100,000 people worldwide and rising. Let's face it, when you think of all the people who haven't been tested, it's probably way, way, way more than that. So how do you inhale all these reports and not let them affect your mood for the rest of the day? And by the way, this goes way beyond the coronavirus. People going through breakups, divorces, problems on the job, problems with their kids, problems with finances. How do we not let frustrating moments magnify so they take over the rest of our day and even our dreams? Well, my guest this week had a very bad moment about 19 years ago. Michael O'Brien was happily riding a bicycle at about 20 miles an hour under an impossibly blue sky in New Mexico one morning when he was on a business trip. When an SUV traveling at 40 miles an hour swerved right into his lane and smashed straight into him, Michael was thrown head and shoulder straight into and through the windshield. His femoral artery was also severed. And if he hadn't been in such good condition, he would have bled to death. I'll let him describe it and the limitations that the doctors told him he was going to have to live with. Point is, I met Michael in Huntington Beach last Friday, where he and some buddies from New Jersey were in the midst of a cycling vacation. They had just ridden 450 miles. And Michael was about to return home to continue his work coaching people on how to stop a bad moment from turning into a bad day. His company is called Peloton Executive Coaching, not to be confused with the exercise equipment bike. You can reach Michael at michaelobrienshift.com. The word shift is at the center of his thinking, moving yourself from one state of thought to another. You start with a formula called PBR, pause, breathe, and reflect. He'll talk all about it. I want to thank my sponsor, Sportique, for bringing you this podcast. Just putting on Sportique sweatpants can shift the way you feel about the world. They're so soft, you'll be roaming in comfort and ready to get the best out of your day. Go to Sportique.com, that's S-P-O-R-T-I-Q-E.com to check out those threads and use the offer code CAL for a 20% discount. I got my Sportiques on and I'm ready to go. So let's get straight to Michael O'Brien so that we can all take bad moments and shift them to a far better place. Welcome to Big Questions, Michael. How you doing? Good, Cal. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic and... I know you must be doing good because you were on the bike this morning riding a long distance, weren't you? I was. I've been out here in California since last Thursday with a bunch of my buddies from New Jersey, and we've ridden our bikes every day over 450 miles. And we totally love the weather. And the drivers, I would have to say, in California, I'm not sure how you feel, they're so much nicer than the ones back home in New Jersey and New York. Wow, I don't know where you were, but... (laughs) (laughs) So they were very friendly. We only had a couple people honk at us in like a not-so-pleasant way. But we've had a beautiful time, but it's uh, re-entry time. we got to go back starting tomorrow. Well, let me take you back into the real world here. There's this thing called the coronavirus that's exploded all over the globe. Last week, I had a guest on, Aunt Mitzi, 
who had spent decades in journalism and healthcare, and she was pointing out all the things that we should think about to protect ourselves. And not long after that podcast came out, I got a text from my pal Matt over at Sportique, my sponsor, and you'll be getting a Sportique hoodie when this is all over. Softest hoodie you ever wore. It'll be great on your bike rides. Point is, I get this text, and this is how it goes. It says, uh, one of the worst days so far for the coronavirus was the 10th of February. On that day, 108 people in China died of coronavirus. But on the same day, 26,283 people died of cancer, 24,641 people died of heart disease, 4,300 people died of diabetes, and on that day, suicide, unfortunately, took more lives than the virus did by 28 times. Moreover, mosquitoes killed 2,740 people every day, humans killed 1,300 fellow humans every day, and snakes kill 137 people every day. So take a deep breath and wash your hands. And it, it gave me perspective. And then I heard about your story because, and let me know if I'm telling this right, you're a guy who had an unbelievable accident on a bicycle. And this was about 18 years ago, 19 years 19 ago. 19 years ago. And took that experience, and we'll talk about it in depth, uh, and turned it into a place where you actually coach people on how to stop bad moments from becoming a bad day and beyond. I get it right? Absolutely. You got it perfect. I got it perfect? Okay. So we're going to have a great conversation here because I got to admit it, I'm at my computer and I'm constantly Googling coronavirus news. I want to know what's going on. So I want to know how to just check myself and get the best out of the day and, and not bring about unnecessary worries. So let's start this back in 2001 on the day of your accident. Can you just explain where you were, what happened, and how it took you to the point where you're now sitting across from me? I, I would love to. So it was New Mexico, July 11, 2001. I was out there for a company offsite meeting pretty typical Monday arrival, Friday departure. And I decided I was going to bring my bike out. All the other guys were going to bring their golf clubs out. And I thought, well, you know what? Back then, cycling will become the new golf. So I'm going to bring my bike out. And I also wanted to cross New Mexico off the states that I've ridden my bike. I had this goal of riding in all 50 states. And that morning, before the meeting started, I came around a bend in the road, this like two-mile loop I was riding just to get 10 laps in, two miles a lap for 20 miles. And it like blue skies because New Mexico <sighs> has those impossibly blue skies. It was a gorgeous morning. It was so picture. It was cool, but not cold. The sun was coming up, blue skies. Cal, I thought I was the smartest guy at the meeting. I'm like, I'm going to go out there. I'm going to get some exercise. I'm going to sit through all the PowerPoint they're going to torture us with. But I'm going to have that <laughs> bike ride in my back pocket. And I'm going to be all smug because everyone else probably would have slept in. And I'm going to be, I'm the athletic one. I'm the one that cares about his health. And I came around the bend and a Ford Explorer was barreling right towards me. He had crossed into my lane fully. So he had crossed over to the other side of the road. Other side of the road. Sort of to cut the apex of the little bend. And I thought for certain he saw me. He's going to get out of the he way. He was going to get out of the way. I was like, he sees me, he's going to get out of the way. He sees me, he's going to get out of the way. He never moved. And I didn't have enough time to react. It was just so surreal. I'm like, this isn't supposed to be happening. I didn't know how to compute and move my body fast enough. And then all I remember next is the sound of me hitting his front grill me going into the windshield and breaking a hole through the windshield, that sound. You went through his windshield. Yeah, so not completely. I don't want to, like, make it, right. make a... Not like your head went through the no, windshield? But my, my shoulder and my face, my head, slammed into the windshield and broke 
open a hole in the windshield. And then he slammed on his brakes. I remember the screech of his brakes. And then the thud I made when I came to the asphalt below. And that, of course, knocked me unconscious. And I regained consciousness once the EMTs arrived. I was surrounded, when I regained consciousness, I was surrounded by EMTs, fire, ambulance, police. I was in the worst pain in my whole life. Even the thought of moving was painful. But I tend to use humor to cut a little tension. So I asked the question that only another cyclist can totally appreciate. I asked the EMTs, I'm like, how's my bike? Oh, <laughs> and they, man. They so you have... <laughs> Uh, a buoyant spirit to begin with. That definitely helped me in, in this whole journey, if you want to call it a journey. And they just looked at me and they said, your bike's fine. You have to focus on you. And then, How fast was that car going? About 40. And I was going about, say, 19 miles an hour. So that's a pretty intense physics lesson right there about energy. And I just then started focusing in on just trying to keep myself awake, which was, you know, remaining conscious. I thought if I could stay awake, now this sounds crazy today, I could control the situation. You know, oh, that sounds smart to me. And, and so I thought if I lost consciousness, I would lose control. And then eventually they called the medevac to take me to Albuquerque. It was my first helicopter flight. I tried to argue out of the helicopter flight because I was back then scared of flying. I was Highly oh, irrational. Hey, I got a fear of life. I, I got, I got, I can't, I'm scared of flying. And they're like, your life is in the balance. And I got on that helicopter and I made a commitment to myself that if I live, because I knew that was in question based on how they were behaving, that I would stop chasing happiness. Because before my accident, I did a lot of chasing happiness, which I think is even more common today. It's that whole, like, I'll be happy when... Okay. Fill that sentence in. and So let's take this back as far as we go then. Uh, as a kid, where'd you grow up? I grew up in Rochester, New York, the home of Kodak. And it's cold there. You got a lot of winter. Are people happy in Rochester? I think it's a good, has more of a Midwestern type of vibe than right. a New York City vibe. I think people are happy there, even despite the cloudiness I love to say it's a really great place to grow up. I don't know if I really want to move back there because it is cold. So were you happy as a kid? I, I think I was generally happy, but I didn't think I was really complete. I thought I had to always chase after external merit badges to prove that I was worthy of true happiness. So I, like, what, what did your parents do? My parents were basically pretty straight middle class. My mom was an LPN nurse. My dad was a salesperson for a moving company. All right. So middle class, uh, and you seem to be either aspiring to more or just curious about what you might be missing? Yeah, probably aspiring to more, and probably more not in terms of like better myself, but more in a comparison to others that I like grew up with. We, you know, we had enough, but certainly where I went to school, I was surrounded by other kids who had more. And I never felt like very self-confidence just showing up at school and my own self-narrative. Wherever that came from, I have no idea because my parents did a good job. They were loving parents. But we were, you know, basically like a lot of families, like most families, we were middle class, maybe a little bit lower middle class. And I had that thirst to get a little bit better. But a lot of that back then was driven by the fact that I felt I didn't have enough. I didn't have enough to truly matter. Would you look at other people and think they were happier than you? Back when I was growing up, yes. Because I thought that was the script. I thought the script of life was, you know, try to work hard you know, make the money, buy those things that would, you know, that you would see through media or TV or what have you, that that was... The things made you happy. Yeah, that was the charmed life. I would be happy when. So I was like, well, that seems to be the script. That's what everyone seems to be following. At least that was my perspective. So I was like, all right, let's get on that hamster wheel and go get it. But... That didn't make you happy. Didn't make me happy. In fact, it 
probably made me more frustrated because when I became an adult, I, you know, I got, even through my, actually my childhood, I got some of those things. You know, I had some awards through sports. I got some accolades through work. I bought that nice car. You know, I What got, were you doing? Well, for work, I started in sales. So started in healthcare sales. Sort of followed in my dad's footsteps. My first job, though, was the paper route. I was a paper boy back when I was 12 years old. And I've had yeah, a job. Me jo- too. I ha- I've had a job almost every day since that day. And so we- my parents definitely instilled in us a strong work ethic. Okay. So I, I guess I'm just looking for the string here on what around you made you feel like you weren't as happy as you should be. I would say it would be the comparison I was making towards other people. Okay. That's the threat. That's the key. That's That's the key. key. It was instead of being comfortable in my own skin and appreciating everything I had around me, I spent most of my time, I burnt most of my calories on looking at what I didn't have in comparison to others. Okay. I think a lot of people... I think a lot of people fall in that category. Yeah. And so you go out on that road in New Mexico and this car comes into at 40 miles an hour. You're at 19, smash through the windshield, land on the pavement and they fly you off for treatment. Does something happen inside you during this time that shows you a path to happiness because you should have been pretty unhappy at that moment. Yes. I was, well, I, I think the emotion I was feeling was I was scared out of my bejeebies. Are you, okay. I was terrified. And I was focused on my flight nurse. I remember every minute of that, those 19 minutes. And I went down the elevator into the trauma center. I met my anesthesiologist, and then I met my orthopedic surgeon. So you had your consciousness the whole time. The whole time, once I regained it. And, you know, I, like, I fought like the Dickens to keep it. And then once I met the anesthesiologist and orthopedic surgeon, then I went off to Never Never Land for four-plus days oh, man. through the surgery and then into the ICU. It wasn't really until... I came out of the ICU. When, when I came out of the ICU, when I thought life was going to be different, it was not different in the fact that I was happy because I survived. They started to paint a picture that was going to be a lifetime of dependency, lifetime of limitation. Could you walk? No. Couldn't walk? What were these, some of the other damages? So basically what broke, well, a whole bunch of everything broke, but the main main things that were really significant right leg, the left femur shattered. And when the left femur shattered, it lacerated the femoral artery of the left leg. Oh, man. So I broke, and that was an open fracture. So the the leg basically exploded and then cut the femoral artery. And then I had multiple fractures to my right leg, to um, places in my upper body. Of course, I had a major concussion, and I had glass on the right side of my face from my ear to my mouth, and then a whole bunch of scrapes, bruises, and cuts, and all that jazz. But the femoral artery injury was the most significant. The doctors had told my wife, had I been 10 years older or not in shape, I would have died before I got to the hospital because I lost so much blood. So when I came out of the ICU, the doctor said, hey, here's what happened to you. You know, this is what you broke. This is your future. What your, is your future? Oh, well, back then he was like, well, it's you're 2001. You're probably not going to ride again, you know, based on other people that had similar injuries. And mine was special and maybe a bit unique. Did he think you could work again? There was a question about that. Um, I might walk again with significant limitations. The picture that I heard, though, that he was painting was that the identity that you know of yourself today has just been tipped upside down and shaken violently. And so you are going to face a lot of obstacles and challenges going forward. And that cow scared me even more because the person I was before the accident, even though I felt like I was chasing happiness and I had success, but I didn't feel like I was complete, I was an athlete and I was a dad because our girls were three and a half years old and seven months old at the time. 
been married seven years, like all that sort of came front and center to say, well, if I can't be who I was, sort of like the devil you know versus the devil you don't, who will I become? And that uncertainty for... Hey, I'll be happy. Yeah, yeah. I was like, there's no happiness. All that happiness stuff turned to anger, frustration, revenge. You You wanted revenge? Well, I learned growing up, eye for an eye. He harmed me, I will harm him. Wow. So... How did that play out? Did you want to go get the driver or something? Yeah, I really did, you know, to be quite transparent and honest. I I couldn't sleep in the hospital. I was in traction for a good part of it early on. Yeah, ICU is the most difficult place to sleep. They're always poking you with needles yeah. every three minutes. Yeah, the hospital where, where you need, you know, I know they're doing their job and they're professional and, hey, I'm here today because of my whole medical team. But they would wake me up constantly to make sure that I was still. Your okay. numbers got to be right. So, numbers got to be right. Yeah. So I had a lot of time just to think and not think really great thoughts. So I thought, well, how can I get back at the driver? Like I, I developed schemes in my head. They were all like crazy schemes. None of them would have worked if I wanted to execute them. But calmer heads prevail eventually. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to do anything. I through this whole process, I've learned a lot about forgiveness. So I've let go of what the driver did. He didn't wake up that morning with the intention to harm me. He just had a bad day behind the wheel or really a bad moment. Yeah. Do you ever talk to him afterward? I only saw him once. We had an encounter at traffic court. So what was interesting about this what case- What is a traffic court? <laughs> yeah, we so this gets what? even better. So the property, the hotel was built on- Native American land. And so the traffic violation, he was driving with a revoked license. So the traffic court date went to basically the court on tribal property. So they had a traffic court. They had a traffic court. So I've had to fly out to New Mexico up to that courthouse, which was like smaller than the room that we're in right now. And I got to sort of interact with him. We didn't necessarily have a conversation, but we had to go through the whole court proceedings. And explain what happened. Explain what happened. He explained his side. And when you listened to his side, did it make you feel differently about him? No. I would have to say no. Okay. No, not too many people have asked me that question. So I got to see him as a real person. And at that point in time, it was still really early on in my recovery. And he didn't come full on with an apology. Oh, man. And I thought that was his moment. And so that, in that moment, that added to my frustration and anger. It was several years later, though, I really learned how to let go, how to forgive. I knew that keeping all the mojo and energy and not so good vibes I had for him from an analogy perspective in my backpack, carrying that around with me, wasn't helping me create the life I wanted to create. So I had an experience. We had a private tour of Auschwitz on a family vacation with Eva Kaur, who was a twin Holocaust survivor. She recently passed away, but she lived in Terre Haute, Indiana. And she was asked during the tour, where you know her whole family went, and her and her twin sister survived, and her family did not. And someone asked her how she felt about the Germans and the Nazis. And she said, I've forgiven them, not because they deserve forgiveness, but because I do. And it was one of those moments, Cal was like, holy cow, like if she can forgive, why can't I forgive? And then I really tried to work on my forgiveness for the driver and let that go. Was that a necessary step in taking you to a place where you now coach people on taking a bad moment and not letting it inflame or turn into a hot coal? Yes, I think definitely forgiveness is part of it. Learning lessons from each and every one of our experiences is another part of it, but certainly forgiveness is a big part of 
the whole process, to let go of things and not let them fester, not let them gain any more momentum. I still, even though I call it my last bad day, I still have bad moments. I still have challenging moments. I feel all those different emotions. But when a bad moment happens, I don't want it to have as much intensity or duration as it did before my accident. I don't want to give it any more fuel than it deserves. So you can move on to do the work that you're meant to do. Well, that's my big question for the week. When you just described that, I can't remotely compare it to me sitting at a computer and reading about coronavirus statistics spiking in the world. Although for each of those people who's passed away and their families, this is as deep as it gets. But I'm wondering, am I just heightening this bad feeling by continually going back and seeking it out and looking to find out what's going on? Or am I just being prepared? Well, I think being prepared, it takes some action. I think if we keep on going back and feeding our anxiety and worry about the coronavirus, that's something that can lead a bad moment or what we're facing current day to turn into something major where we start to close down and hole up and we don't really live life. And I think you are someone who seeks out the news. So you're going to go out there onto Google or to the internet or the news, and you're going to see more of the messages. And so one of the things I've tried to do and I've talked to others about, because a lot of my clients are also affected by that travel bans, can't go here, can't go there. Is so a lot of people are talking about this with you. Totally. And I have a conference that I'm going to speak at on Monday. And many of the presenters have now canceled on the conference because their companies have shut down travel. And some of the attendees can no longer attend because their companies have shut down travel. And when you put it into perspective, based on what this data that you shared as we opened up our conversation, we are becoming, I think, a bit irrational, and we are irrational, emotional creatures. So when you look at the numbers in pure sense, it would say, well, okay, this is something to be concerned about and take precautions and prepare. But the news, I think, sometimes likes to feed on worry and anxiety and makes maybe a, a mountain out of a molehill. And I think that's at least some aspect of what we're doing today. So I think there's ways to process, like, this is something to notice to have some care as we approach maybe how we wash our hands, some of the safety precautions that are really basic, but not let it turn into something where we are filled with anxiety and no, now we can't live our lives and do the things that we want to do. So is there a step that somebody would take after something bad happens? And, and let's push aside the coronavirus for a minute. Let's say somebody just went through a bad breakup yep. or marriage is getting split up. Are these some of your clients, this same ballpark? Same ballpark. They all have everything from a bad moment at work. You know, you got passed by for a promotion, you got fired, a marriage breaks up, you get an illness. All those are common everyday life experiences, just like even my accident, as, as horrific as it is, many people get hit by cars all the time while they're riding their bike. So it's not rare what I went through. My injuries are rare, but those experiences, I think, are everyday life experiences. So what do we do to stop a bad moment from morphing into something larger? Well, the very first step is one of our basic things that we have, it's always with us, is to catch our breath. And it sounds so simple, maybe a little trite, and be like, oh, you just want us to breathe. But I think it's something really magical. When we get in a bad moment, what happens is that we have a natural biological response, call it fight and flight, and we're off to the races with making up a story. I like to say we're making shift up, and we create these stories that are bigger than life, that are filled with some worry, maybe some fear, some anxiety, maybe different emotions. And then the one thing gets so big, then we're off to the races. 
So by connecting with our breath and just slowing down, I have a little process, Cal, that I call grabbing a PBR. I learned it in the hospital. What's a PBR? So it's not a Pabst Blue Ribbon. So okay. so, to, so it's it's called pause, breathe, and reflect. And it's a simple one to two minute deep breathing exercise. And I had to tap into it more times than not in the hospital because my mind was racing. Like if I felt an ache or the doctor had a worried look on his or her face when they came to visit, I went into that mode of, oh my God, this is going to be horrible. Like this little pain is going to be something much more major. So I learned to connect with my breath and do the PBR. So that's the first step. The second step is trying to chunk down the problem into bite-sized pieces. So with coronavirus, like, you know, what do I actually have control over? There's a lot that we don't have control over. So we're going to let that go. And what can I can control? So we can control washing our hands, touching our face, being cautious, but not overly concerned. We can do all that. So there is a point of action with all that. So we connect with our breath. We do a little research, even as we go through maybe a bad breakup, you know, we miss a promotion, we get fired. We can take that moment to say, okay, how do we want to get through this process, this event? We chunk it down and then we start to take bite-sized action. So different steps that we can take. And the other part of it too, is just looking at the whole situation with a bit of gratitude. So early on in my accident, all I saw was everything I had lost, everything I couldn't do anymore. So to help me sort of make that progress, make that turn, I started looking at the things I still could do, the things I still could have in my life, and having a little bit more gratitude for the ordinary things in life as a way to say, to see in my life, hey, there's still some good things. Like what? Like what? was on that list? So one of the things is simple. This is going to sound a little corny, but it was meaningful to me. So every morning in the hospital, I started the morning off with guava juice. So that was, I love guava juice, man. I like, it's my favorite juice. I I know a lot of people are like, probably don't even like guava juice. I love guava juice. I get why you'd be grateful for it. So every morning, I would make sure I would order guava juice as a way to start the day off on the right foot. And then with intention, with intentionality, I would try to find other little small things that were positive in my life. It could be the lemonade that my wife brought me every day for lunch. So I can no longer drink lemonade without thinking about how much care and support she gave me and love during my whole recovery. Like those That's little things. Beautiful. Yeah. So like lemonade to me is a, when I order lemonade at lunch, the, the people that I'm having lunch with really don't know it. But for me, it's like, that is a drink of love. Because every day she would come and she'd bring me a snack from home and she'd bring me a lemonade. And, and you were drinking her love, basically. You better believe it. And so I would look for those ordinary things as a way to find a little bit more gratitude in my life, as opposed to trying to chase after the extraordinary. Because I think right now in 2020, there are so many people out there, they feel like they have to do more to be more, or they have to do extraordinary things to be on the edge to be considered extraordinary. And I think there's so much beauty in just the ordinary. And so when we have these really tough moments, if we can go there, we have a way of seeing things a little bit different. It's just a reframing or a shift in perspective that could be the start. And for me, through my whole recovery, and even as we go through the coronavirus, is what little steps can we take each and every day, coupled together or strung together, that can help us go through that challenging moment, that challenging week, so we can get focused on the things that we're really good at, that we're supposed to be doing. So I'll take precautions when I fly back to New Jersey. What will you do? So I will probably have some hand sanitizer. I will wash my hands. I'll be more conscious. 20 of, seconds. Yes. Listen to Aunt So yeah, Yes, I did. Well, I did listen. <laughs> so I'll do my ABCs as I wash my hands. So that's another tip. And then- I, I got to tell you, a guy named Dan that I had uh, a meeting with early one morning, he had flown across the country. He listened to the podcast 
And he started to go into bathrooms and watch how long people were watching oh. for. And he was saying, there were some people who weren't even washing. No, I, the, the thing is, is that we really don't, do we really want to share what really goes on in a men's bathroom in an airport? So, you know, like as far as like hygiene and washing of hands, I'm not sure if we want to go there. So, but, but I'll do, I'll do those things. I'll be conscious of how often I touch my face. I'll do all those, those basic things. I was just about to touch my face when you said I know, that. You and did. I you were, stopped. You were and right stopped, there. Man. You were right there. So, oh I'll, man. And now I'm grateful that yes. I didn't touch my face, but my eyelid is itching. I don't know what to do. <laughs> so, well, you can use a, a, um, a Kleenex or something like that. So, but I'll do all those things to take the necessary precautions. And I know the signs and symptoms because I've educated myself on those. And if I have any of the early signs, I will go seek treatment. And with proper treatment, we'll, we'll get the I, care that we want. When you're on the airplane, are you going to look around and be grateful for something? I'm going to be grateful. Yeah. I'll for- tell you what. What about the stewardess, steward, walking up and down the aisles, uh, taking care of people? They're in that box above the earth for hours in a day. There ain't no fresh air up there. That air is circulating around the plane. Could be grateful for all those people. All those people, because they're doing a job. You know, one could say, if you really get worked up about the news, they're going into harm's way, being on an airplane. They could get sick themselves. And so here we have a crew of wonderful people that provide a great service. That I guess they call them flight attendants now. Back in the day, we called them stewardesses. Yes, we did. Yes, we did. We're we're of similar age, and that's what we did. But here's the thing. Like, Tuesday morning, when I go to LAX, I'll be able to be home for dinner. Like, how cool is that? And so do we have some moments of air travel grief? Certainly. But getting worked up about those flight delays or maybe when the surface isn't as great, that doesn't change the the fact that it's still delayed. So I'm a big believer. Like, Why get worked up? Why get worked up? Why get worked up? Because you People are getting all worked up. They're getting all mad about something that they don't have control over. And so when we're worked up and we're in that agitated state, there's no way we can can make a connection with the people that we care about the most. So because inevitably, you know, you get worked up about something and then, you know, your spouse calls and then you call, you know, you might call him or her back, be like, I can't believe this. And the whole phone call is all about how worked up you are on something that you can't control. And you miss an opportunity to connect with someone you love. That happens so often. When I see people, they they feel wronged and they start to complain. And then it gets bigger, 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 bigger. So the idea is just pause, take a breath. Grab a PBR, see what you can control, see what you can't control. If you have to do a little research so you can control the things you can control a little bit better, you can do that. Try to find some of the positives in the situation and then take the action you think will help you make progress, help you get through it. Um, Be intentional about that. I think, you know, there's a lot of self-help, professional help out there. I think one of the things that we don't talk enough about is just being intentional about what action we want to take next or intentional about what we want to say next, as opposed to just reacting. We're going at such a pace, and sometimes that's due to technology, sometimes it's just due to life and how we're living it, that we're on this hamster wheel and we're going, 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 It's like the car. It's like the Ford that's just going around the corner and it just loses a little control and boom. Boom. And then you're in a change management project without any warning. And then you have to decide, and this is something that one of my mentors told me when I was in a sort of a low moment. He said, Michael, all the events in your life are neutral until you label them. And at first- Whoa, what a line. Yeah, and at first I was like, is that some like Jedi mind trick thing? (laughs) And I was like, what? Because I was not in the mood at that moment for a pep talk. And he said, hey, nothing has meaning until you give it meaning. And right now, you're giving all this the meaning that you're the victim, 
that woe is you, life is unfair. And I'm not saying that life is fair, but you have a choice in how you look at this. You have a choice in how you label this. You can label this in a different way where you are someone who rises up when faced with a challenge and you might be able to inspire some people later on in your life. So you get some choice in all this and we get some choice in how we react to what happens in life. We can freak out, we can be worried, we can be anxious or we can try to take steps to say, okay, what do I have control over and how do I move forward? And that's not to say that we should never be sad or angry and all that. I just want us to be more aware, more intentional about how long we want those different emotions to last. Yeah, I think you really just hit the bullseye on the answer to the question, uh, because when you think about it, just making every event neutral until you put a label on it, it goes back to that text I was reading at the outset, where you can look at 108 people died of coronavirus in China today, and you can be scared, is this going to continue to spread? But then when you compare it to 137 people died the same day because they were bitten by a snake, it's, wow, that's not too many people. This, and you just can see it in a different light. Absolutely. And I'm terrified of snakes, Cal. So when you said the <laughs> snake one, I... Oh, and you're riding a bicycle in some snake-ridden area. Well, that, I, actually, during one of our pit stops, I sat down and right behind me, there was a sign that said, beware of rattlesnakes. And one of my fellow cyclists says, did you see that sign? I go, no, what sign? He was like, the rattlesnake sign. And I jumped higher than I think I've ever jumped in my life. <laughs> and I can't jump very well after oh, my accident. So man. I'm no, I'm terrified of snakes. So when you read that, but it's, 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 again, it's not to minimize the fact that something big is happening in the world. So let's put this in perspective. Let's try to like recruit a little bit of our rational mind, take the precautions that we need to take. And also understand that for us who tend to consume a lot of media, we're reading the newspaper, we're doing the internet, we're watching the news that many of those messages out there are probably not for us. We maybe hear it once and we can take the right action, but there are a lot of people that don't hear everything that we hear. They're not consuming media like we consume them. Correct. So sometimes the frequency of the message that seems to make us feel that we're making a huge deal about this is really intended to reach more of the audience because they're not consuming media like we consume it. So it's a, that's a little bit of a different perspective too, to say, all right, well, the news agencies, they, they're trying to do a public service, trying to educate the public. We have the TV on all the time, so we hear the message all the time, but really the frequency of that message is really meant to extend the reach of the education so more people are taking the smart action that they need to take. Is there anything beyond looking at every event as neutral and then putting your own meaning to it that I can use to make sure a bad moment doesn't turn into a bad day? I think the one piece, and you just interviewed James, and he, he and- James Altucher. Yeah, he's a great guy. And you talked to him about how every moment is a learning moment. Right. There is a positive outcome or negative outcome, and you can learn from it everything, every moment you have. So you can start with some neutrality as far as your moments. But I also think regardless if you hit the mark or you miss the mark, there's learning in that. And I think our life moments, if we don't capture that, if we don't catalog that, then it's a moment we miss. So I love the advice that you guys chatted about because I think that's another component of all this to say, okay, the other day, one of my fellow cyclists, he crashed on his bike ride. And so one of the questions I had for him, he had a bad moment. He got bandaged up. He was on the mend. And I asked Dan, I said, well, what's the lesson? And so the lesson was, you know, make sure my bike's maintained because he crashed because he didn't have a properly maintained bike. So those cataloging of our 
of our experiences, of the knowledge that we get from our good moments or not so good moments, I think that's also key to weave into the whole process. You know, there's something about your voice that's got a calmness to it. Oh. Was it always like that? Or is this something that developed in this process of educating people on how to make sure their bad moments don't spread? That's a great question, Cal. I don't know how to answer that. So I'm not sure it was in the beginning. So growing up with the last name O'Brien, I had a classic Irish temper. So I was really good at reacting to those bad moments. Like we had some really grainy family videos of me striking out in Little League and really, you know, Throwing the bat. Throwing the, the bat. The, the, like, so one, one day my parents sat us down. They made popcorn. They're like, we're going to watch a family movie. Oh, no. And so they- it was they, a, they put together a blooper tape? A of blooper of me. <laughs> I thought, oh, like, we're going to watch a really great family movie. And it was a total setup. And I watched it. And I was, I was mortified. I was like, oh, my God, that behavior is just outrageous. So at that early age, I started working on- my temper a bit. And so maybe from that moment on, just the calmness. I, you know, I, what I try to do with my clients is just like we are, let's have a conversation about what's happening in the world and how do we navigate a little bit better. I'm not one for a lot of the exaggerated volume of the internet, of some of the professional and self-help, you know, advice out there. I think life is about conversation. You know, that's how we get stuff done in our personal lives and our professional lives. And this is, I think, a great thing about your podcast is that it just validates the fact that things happen through conversation. Without conversation, nothing happens. And so with better conversation, when we really listen to each other, we listen to connect and understand with each other, as opposed to what happens a lot is we listen to reply or we post to reply that we don't make that connection, then it's hard to build a trusting community that I call my vernacular for a community or a tribe is called a Peloton, like who's in your Peloton. So I looked at my medical team as my medical Peloton. And for those that don't know what a Peloton is, it's a group of cyclists in a bike race like the Tour de France. So they're all different teams, all different people but they need each other to go down the road as fast as possible. They need to communicate and collaborate and there's trust and all that jazz. And I'm a big believer of really paying attention to who's in your Peloton, who's around you, who are you riding with in life? And to build a strong one, you need to have really good conversation with each other. So you can have a sense of calm, maybe a sense of reassurance that we can take the right action to move down the road together as fast as possible. Well, I'm going to bump elbows with you on that one. Not shaking too much hands lately, but... That's okay. We can bump elbows. (laughs) That's a good precaution. Just a little fist bump or a bump. Do do the elbow bump. And really want to thank you. That line that came from your mentor about seeing everything as neutral until we label it was the secret sauce I was looking for. And the fact that it came to you through your mentor tells me that it seems like it's the inspiration for everything you're doing now, coaching people and helping them see that it's all neutral. It's all the way you look at it. You bet. So I want you to go home, have a great flight, I want you to get some lemonade if they got it on that airplane. And thank your wife for all that love. I'm feeling mighty happy right now for having met you, Michael. Uh, Me too. Thank you so much. It's the best I've felt all day. Awesome. That about wraps it up. want to thank Tim Ferriss, as always, for nudging me to start this podcast. Tim asked for the cancellation of the South by Southwest Conference and Festival in Austin this month to protect against the spread of coronavirus. South by Southwest brings roughly 160,000 people to Austin in the middle of every March, and this year it has been canceled. If, as Michael O'Brien recommends, we look at that cancellation in a neutral light, we can all give our own label to it. 
I see it as a positive. I think it's wise to take the month of March to avoid large congregations of people where the virus might spread chaotically. As April comes along with the winding down of flu season, we'll be able to make clearer decisions. One of our listeners from North Carolina, pal Dan, heard the podcast with Aunt Mitzi last week and decided to monitor people's habits while he was flying across the country. He had a very similar experience to me when he entered public men's rooms. He estimated that between 10 and 20% of the people who came out of the men's room did not bother to wash their hands at all. That is not a neutral event. There is nothing good about that. According to Dan, very few men were taking the 20 seconds to lather up for as long as you can sing the ABC alphabet song. Nothing good about that either. On the other hand, some people were cleansing their airline seats with sanitary wipes. In every cough on his flight back home, he said, seemed to cause every passenger to squirm in their seats and at times glare. One of the reasons I did this podcast with Michael O'Brien is I think we all need to find some balance here. We need to do the right things to protect ourselves and not overreact in a way that takes down our day. My feeling, as I said last week, is we're in a race against time. If we can bump elbows instead of shaking hands, lather up repeatedly for 20 seconds, and avoid large gatherings through the month of March, we'll be in a position to see if we can push back the virus as flu season winds down. I hope this episode gave you all a little inspiration. If you go to michaelobrienshift.com, you can see photos of the aftermath of his bicycle accident back in 2001. These will show you the power in making a shift. I want to thank my sponsor, Sportsik, once again for all its support, and one of its founders, Matt Altman, for sending the text that you heard at the beginning of my conversation with Michael O'Brien. It's all about perspective, and you're going to have a great perspective when you're in some soft Sportik sweatpants. So go to sportique.com, that's S-P-O-R-T-I-Q-E.com, and use the offer code CAL for a 20% discount on all your Sportique threads. Look, it's a difficult time all around the world, but Michael O'Brien was sure smiling after riding 450 miles on a bicycle with his friends just before I met him. Hope you all make the best of your moments no matter what those moments are. Cheers!